down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine, drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start singing all night, drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When he gets drunk, start fighting all night. Knock down windows and tear down doors. Welcome to Tasting Anarchy. I'm Jacob Lindsay, and I'm joined by... And uh, today we've got another great show for you that is probably, I think, the only liberty-oriented wine show on the air. And, yes. Um, I mean, you. Mace, you and I have both kind of been like looking at more wine shows just sort of get an idea of what exists lately. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe what fits into it, there's like one that's not hoity-toity but it's but the lady who hosts it who's very knowledgeable is just too knowledgeable to not be hoity-toity and uh and then the other ones are like mixed with like movie reviews or something like that so i think we're the only ones who link liberty with wine so let's not say she's hoity-toity because she would make a good guess sometimes she would well i wouldn't say yeah i I mean hoity-toity i think is the correct word and and she's used it a few times on the show where She talks about it where she says, like, I'm trying to make this accessible for everybody. But when you're that versed in the world of wine, it becomes a difficult – it's sort of difficult to communicate correctly – or not correctly, but difficult to communicate with people on their level when you have Mm -hmm. such a ridiculous amount of knowledge. I think that's the same thing with uh, our level of anarchy. Yeah, I I think so too. And that's why, like, listening to – to her show is is a little bit refreshing for me not in the anarchist sense but it kind of reminds me that like when i listen to her show and we're going to actually talk about this today on our show she'll say something like offhanded and i'll have to make a note of it and be like i don't know what that is and go look it up <laughs> and it's and like, uh, good no I, well i was gonna say it's it's also like since so many wine terms are french she'll just say mm-hmm. it the way it's supposed to be said but <laughs> that's not how i've read it like i've read it as completely different thing oh like so I think you probably have a better basis for trying to figure out French spelling, you know, given your usage or studying Latin in previous that's times. Tr- yep, that's true. But for me, it's like near impossible. So a lot of times, like I'll know the word from another show, misread it because I've never seen it written. And there's all those, you know, not pronunciations like I would expect. Yeah. And then like, I'll hear you saying it. I'm like, Oh, right. this is the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't even know if I'm saying it correctly most of the time, but let's go yeah. ahead and uh, get into the wine today. Um, yeah. mine, the, the, it's, you know, my pick for today. And mm-hmm. I think as I mentioned, either in the mini episode or in an episode that you and I did together that, uh, I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal Wine Club. So mm-hmm. they they send 12 wines, and I subscribe to their red ver- version of it. And it's, a, it's really a great deal, actually. Um, if you guys are interested in getting a good deal on wine, you can find a coupon, and you can get, like, 12 bottles for – it's like – I think with the shipping, it's about $90. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being less than $10 a bottle, and some of the bottles of wine are actually pretty expensive. I think the most expensive one that was in it is about 30 bucks. The wine that I'm talking about today is an Italian blend. And it just so happens that uh, I also recently read and watched a couple of videos on Italian wine. So now, now that I have kind of an appreciation of what's, what was going on in Italy and have tasted this wine, it's kind of more interesting to me than it was before. So this one is, uh, Sarcosa 
2016, uh, Rose, I'm going to say Rose di Toscana. Um, it's out of, out of Italy, of course. It's 13% alcohol by volume. It is a red blend. And I didn't get percentages for the grapes, but it's a blend between Cabernet, Merlot, and Sangvenise, mm-hmm. which I think we've had a Sangvenise before. I may be spelling, I may be saying that incorrectly. I think we've had it in a blend. Oh, in a blend? Okay. It could be a blending grape. One thing that I thought was really interesting about this, and when you go look this particular wine up online, uh-huh. this one is not a Super Tuscan, but you might hear people like talk about Super Tuscans once in a while. And what a Super Tuscan is, is very uh, undefined, I guess, is the... It's how it is. And so Americans will talk about Super Tuscans a lot, and Italians, I guess, will talk about it as well. But it came out of something really interesting is a France has this, and Italy has this, and, and actually the European overall has this as well. They have a tiered quality of wine um, that is uh, that's enforced by law. So depending on what tier you're at, that is the quality of your wine. And it doesn't – the way that they define each tier doesn't always – actually lend itself to quality. So a good uh a good example of this in the Italian sense is uh Chianti. Uh-huh. So or like what well, uh what is it that uh uh Hannibal Lecter says Chianti? <laughs> yeah. So uh it it's sort of like this. So what was going on in Italy at the time is in order to be at the top tier, you had to follow all these very strict rules for the wine. And like Chianti was one of the ones where you had to have a very specific percentage of this, a very specific percentage of this, a very specific percentage of this to make a wine. And so what a lot of the people were doing to produce a high-quality wine was following these rules very specific. But there were several, particularly in Tuscany, which is a region of wine or a region of Italy, um, they were not really happy with the quality that they were producing for several years because – Wine is affected greatly by the climate and the geography and all that sort of stuff. And they just had a kind of a weird couple of years where they wanted to use other types of grapes that were growing very well in those years in their wines. But due to the requirements that the government was putting on the wines, they really couldn't. So a lot of these Tuscans started putting different grapes together for their own personal use. And a lot of people, you know, they would, they would travel to the winery and they would try it and they'd be like, oh my gosh, these are amazing wines. And so one wine winery finally petitioned the government and got, um, like a permission, I guess, from them to release a, a wine that didn't really adhere to any of the rules. Uh-huh. And, um, this wine was so well received across the world. It had like a ridiculous amount of points and stuff like that, that other people in, tu- in Tuscany started releasing these other wines as well. And they became, Instead of being wines made to adhere to these specific rules, they became wines that its goal was to make the best wine. And so, uh-huh. you, so you started getting all these really interesting blends that were unusual and that the people, you know, in, in Italy in particular, I mean, there's, these people have been working the same land for hundreds of years. They know what grows well. They know how to grow very well. They know how to make the wine because most of them are growers and winemakers. And they, so they started producing these just amazing wines and those wines became known as super Tuscans. Mm-hmm. And because it was not just a Tuscan, it was, you know, it was better than a regular Tuscan. So that's where the, the term super Tuscan came from. This particular one, the Sarcosa is not a super Tuscan. The, um, Sarcosa, I believe is the winery. It was, it was a, again, when you go from country to country, the way that they label wine is sometimes confusing and obviously we're not experts, but, um, you want the what's that? I said, do you want the answer? Yeah, what's the answer? So it is Sarcosa. Okay. Uh, is, the, is the winery. Um, the name is actually Russo. 
So oh, Russo. R-O-S-S-O, okay. which is just red in Italian. Okay. In Di Toscano, or Tus- uh, Toscana. I would, um, I, I would imagine that it's like from Tuscany, red from Tuscany yeah, or something like that. Red from Tuscany. Okay. So, like, because I, I was trying to find the blend percentage oh, okay. while we were talking about it. Yeah. Um, which, because, like, I Googled what you had in the notes. Mm-hmm. It took me a minute to go, like, okay, am I looking at the right thing? Okay, yes, I am. Okay. I still can't find the blend percentage. Yeah, so but, I know that IGP has something to do with its tier in the mm-hmm. in the rating system. And I don't know okay. what, I don't know what tier that is, but, uh, it's, I don't know. It's very interesting. So anyways, that long story right. short, I think this is a very good wine. And I've actually had two Italian wines in the Wall Street Journal wines that were sent to me. Both of them have been fantastic. And I don't know. And I've also like, I don't know if it's turning out that I really like reds from warm regions because I also think the Spanish ones that were sent were also mm-hmm. unbelievably fantastic. Like there was a, there was a Spanish cab. And then there was just another red blend that was Spanish that I just thought both both of those were great. Both of the Italians were great. The French red blends I had were okay, but mm-hmm. I've just like lately am really into these Italian red blends. And um, I took my own notes on this, and they're damn near exactly what the description from Wall Street Journal wine was. So I'll so. I'll go ahead and read what um, Wall Street Journal wine has, and I'll tell you what I had different. So it says ripe cherry, vanilla, and baking spice. I said on mine ripe red fruit, vanilla, and baking spice. So oh. pretty pretty close. And then I said for taste, I said red fruit, very tannic, a little bit acidic, smooth finish. And they said dense round berry fruit with ripe tannins and long smooth finish. So I'm nice. I'm getting pretty good, man. <laughs> I'm getting pretty good with these uh with these tastes. Although mine are a little bit simpler and I think translate a little better because sometimes it's hard to say like what is a ripe cherry? Are you talking about a black cherry? Or are you talking about like uh what are those candied cherries that they put on ice cream? Are you talking about, you know, yeah, like yeah, maraschino. Are you look are you talking about those yellow cherries that they have in the Central Valley in California sometimes? You know, that's kind of a, it's a difficult thing to put. I think red fruit is, although it's very general because like a raspberry and a cherry are different in flavor, they are similar enough that people kind of understand what you're talking about. Um, So I've started kind of just when I make my notes, trying to put in just kind of more generic general things so that when I go back to read them, I have a better understanding of what it was I was tasting in that wine. And this one I thought was really great. I love what they recommend with it. They recommend it goes well with pizza. <laughs> and I think that is a, that's a perfect recommendation for an Italian, uh, wine. Whether they mean like Italian pizza, which is different than American pizza, or they mean American pizza, I don't know. But I thought that was a really great recommendation. I could see this going very well with pizza. I actually ate this with, um, a, it's a, it's a Russian cured ham. Uh, it's smoked and cured. It's, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I ate it with that and it was a really good pairing. And then I have one glass left and that's what I'm drinking while we do the show. Nice. So I have, uh, have you ever been to winesearcher.com? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So super awesome information. So the Cabernet Merlot Sangese uh, is the composition, composition of many of the so-called super Tuscans. Mm. So. The blend can be made to any number of variations, but the combination typically draws from the power and structure of the Cabernet Sauvignon, the sweet, juicy flavors of Merlot, and the rustic, sour cherry tang of Sangiovese. The wines may be produced in a style suited to early composition, but are built into robust QEs, C-U-V-E-E-S. 
Kuvak. I'm not sure. Sangiesi is the defining grape in the blend and gives the wine a distinct, distinct Italian accent. Yeah. Right. Black cherry flavor. Oh, okay. Forest floor aromas offer a fresh interpretation of the traditional Cabernet Merlot blend. Hmm. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that sounds about right to me. Yeah. I think you have like really, really picked out that structure and pace set up pretty well. Yeah, I I think I'm getting better at it, and and honestly, like the whole reason I think is because the amount I've been drinking lately, I've not been like getting sloshed every night, but I have had one glass of wine every night for the last like two weeks, mm-hmm. or or yeah, maybe maybe more like a half a glass. But once you do that, if there's if there's five glasses in a bottle and you're having a glass every night, that's that's one glass, you know, every night. And then some nights, you know, two, depending on if I, I'm working, if I'm working out, I only have one. If I'm work, if I'm not working out, maybe two, but I've gone through several bottles of wine. And I think that because when I open the bottle and I usually take a very small amount of it and do my notes off of the small amount, mm-hmm. and then I'll add to the notes later saying that like, Oh, well, you know, after I started drinking this for a while, I started tasting these other things. And it's a lot of fun, and I, I can really see why people get so into wine. There's so much, there's so much involved that is, it's just fun, and it tastes good too. So it's like it tastes good, and there, and you can do like a lot of fun things with it. Like the hoity-toityness, I guarantee, is really fun because, uh-huh. like, as I get more into it, I, I like I talk to Victoria about it. And she doesn't really care about wine; she drinks like one type, and uh, and that's the the Moldovan or Ukrainian. Um, Cahor that we that we get it's way too sweet for me but just talking about it and thinking about it and tasting it does and it's it's very attractive and and I kind of remember really liking this about beer when you and I were really into beer it was kind of the same thing where it was like oh I want to try these different things and I want to taste all these different things in them yeah so anyway that's uh that's the wine for today I guess we'll we'll revisit it at the end um but nope. I yep. have some additional Oh, okay. So it's not actually IGT. It may be on the bottle IGT, mm-hmm. but it's actually IGT. Oh, okay. Identification Zone, Georgia Pacifica, Typica. Um, this is what the super wine comes from. So it was introduced in 1992 to allow a certain level of freedom to Italy's winemakers. Prior to 92, many wines failed to qualify for the DOC, for the DOCG status, uh, not because they were of low quality, but because they were made from grape varieties or in blends not sanctioned under the DOC slash G laws, the IGT classification focuses on the region of origin rather than the great varieties of the wine style. DOC or DOG is demonization owings, <laughs> D or Gene Controlla. Basically, it's the, as you were saying, the wine classification in Italy is the DOC, and then the IGT was created to basically say, oh yeah, there's a free market and having all these rules is stupid. Yeah, well, you know, this actually gets into our first topic. Yeah. Um, Europe is not the only place that has these, uh, you know, uh, and I think we've discussed this before. There's um, the Department of Taxation has a, a sub branch, which I can't remember what they're called, but um, they have American viticulture areas, which are also federally sanctioned and regulated um, growing areas. And so the article that uh, we're, I'm, kind of bringing up a, that is related to this today is back to our apparently our favorite state Oregon because uh, so much yep. is going on out of Oregon that Alcoholic Tobacco Tax Trade Bureau okay that, okay yeah Alcoholic Tobacco Tax okay yeah say that again uh, one second uh, Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau alcohol also known as okay all right so th- this they, they are the ones who regulate 
the regions in the United States. And um, so, do you know? You know, Mason. Do you know what a, a terroir is? I think I think we've talked about it once or twice before. We talked about it once or twice, and when I read the article, okay. I was competent enough with the the feel of it, but I I couldn't, you know, define it for you. Right. Well, so that's the funny thing is apparently nobody can define it. It's one of the, (laughs) it's one of those wine terms that, that means a lot of things, but it also can include stuff or not include stuff that other people are talking about. So this article from Wine Spectator, uh, is it Wine Spectator? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah, it was on, it was on Wine Spectator, um, is about this brewing case that's going on in Oregon. And this is bringing back in a company that we've talked about before, Copper Cane. So in the United States, there's a a debate on the terroir. And that is, does the terroir just mean the region? Does it include, um, if you grow the grapes in a region, then ship the grapes out of the region? What does that mean? And is there, like, what exactly is terroir? And the... And does the terroir have anything to do with the AVA? And it seems like right now the government does sort of take that into account when they're setting up these AVAs. And so just to kind of define it for the listeners, the terroir in a loose sense is the, the climate of the area, the, the, the dirt of the area, the, um, you know, the, the local yeast, the, all of the factors that could be playing into a, uh, an area where wine is grown because grapes, wine grapes do take on a lot of the flavor of the environment. Mm-hmm. And so if, if like, you know, the Willamette Valley in Oregon, for example, has a very specific microclimate, it's going to produce grapes that taste a certain way because of the climate, but also that could be broken down further into different parts of the Willamette Valley, depending on how the soil is, is constructed. And we spoke about this several episodes ago where a lot of the Willamette Valley wine growers who are in the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association think that the Pinot Noir grape, grapes grown on the valley floor are shit compared to the ones that are grown up on the sides of the hills. Mm-hmm. And they want to regulate that as part of the terroir. They're, so that's kind of to uh, basically like a layman's summary of what's going on there. So here's what the way I think the best description that I was trying to form in my head. Uh-huh. The AVA is the body. The terroir is the spirit. So Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. But it's also inclusive of the body because right. you can't like, you can't, steal all the yeast somehow like you know because like you have to have the land there too to kind of get that essence because you know the terroir of the lower eastern shore is different than the upper eastern shore in in virginia exactly so it's it's geographically could be soily consistent however you know it's 90 miles apart like the people working the soil are different like it's just that there is a difference yeah and 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 i think that's a that is a definitely a good way to put it the 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 author of the article which i'm trying to reload it for some reason it's their sites being weird but uh and i didn't write his his name down the the way he kind of describes it is he says he lives in louisiana and he says, I can grow, I can grow Pinot Noir grapes in my backyard if I want. But when I make a Pinot Noir out of it, it's not going to be a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Now, what if I go to Oregon, buy a bunch of Pinot Noir grapes, ship them back to Louisiana and make uh, a Pinot Noir? Is it a Willamette Valley Pinot Noir? And he says, well, according to the law, no, it's not. The answer for this particular, que- in this particular scenario is it would be an American Pinot Noir because mm-hmm. according to the federal regulations right now, it, you have to both grow the grapes and make the wine in the same 
viticulture area in order to be able to claim that that wine is from the viticulture area. So if you, let's say that you buy grapes from the Willamette Valley and then you ship them over to the Rogue Valley, which is also in Oregon, you could call your wine a Oregon wine, but you could not call it a Willamette Valley wine. Well, no, according to this law, you can call it an American wine. No, no, if you ship or- it, if you ship it out of the state and it's not an adjoining state, then it would be an American wine. Okay. You're if, right. Yeah. All right. If it's if it's a adjoining state or the same state, it can be like let's say that they ship it to Idaho and Idaho touches Oregon, so it could be an Oregon wine made in Idaho. They wouldn't have to say it was made in Idaho, but they could say it's in Oregon. But they couldn't say it's a Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. That's and if they made it anywhere outside of the Willamette Valley in Oregon, they couldn't call it a Willamette Valley either. So this is where the weird federal regulation kind of comes to a head is copper cane as we've discussed before is the party that canceled their um grape orders from the uh organ grape growers uh because of the fires they thought it would have smoke taint which is very possible i don't and i don't know what their contract was like like so i can't say that that was a good or a bad thing but copper cane again they buy grapes from oregon as again we've discussed and what they do is they ship them down to napa and they make two Two types of, or two, not types of wine. They're both Pinot Noirs, but two brands of wine. One is called, um, one is called, I'm not going to pronounce this, E-L-O-U-A-N, Ulone, Ulon. Yeah, I'm trying to find it in the article so I can take it. Stab okay. At butchering it. Too. Yeah. And then the other one is called, uh, Willamette Journal. Mm-hmm. They, they are both labeled as organ wines and that, according to the federal law, is legal. Uh-huh. The tricky part is that Copper Cane understands how to make a buck. And they also understand that a large part of wine is the story that comes along with it. So uh-huh. it's particularly for people who are just into wine. Like there's going to be people who just are like, well, I want a good wine. They drink it and they don't care about that. But um, the guy who started Copper Cane actually started another winery before and sold it to a big wine conglomerate for $300 million. And then he went on oh, to start. A, What's that? A multi, he's a multi-generation vintner. Yeah, so I think his name's Joe Wagner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, so he, he knows how to, he knows how to sell. And he also knows that there's like, there's a story that goes along with it. And so because of the laws, he has kind of decided to kind of walk the racer's edge around it. One of them is by calling one of his wine Willamette Journal and then just saying it's from Oregon. It doesn't say it's from Willamette Valley. It just mm-hmm. says it's, but, the fact that its title is Willamette Journal indicates that it's from Willamette Valley. The other one, the Ulian or Ulan, I'm not sure how to say it. Um, yeah. What it says on the bottle is grapes sourced from Willamette, Rogue, and Umqua Valleys. Um, so that is, that's sort of how he skirted the issue. Well, obviously the busybodies and the wine growers in Oregon are angry about this because they're like, well, it's not a, it's not an, it's not a Willamette Valley wine. They're not Willamette Valley. They are Willamette Valley grapes, but the law is you can only label it Oregon. And his argument is I am labeling it from Oregon. I just happen to have, I just say that the grapes are sourced here or my, my name is similar to Willamette. Yeah. Like that's, that's the thing. So from a like a consumer standpoint, it's nice to know where they're sourced from, mm-hmm. even though like, you know, like I understand people like this is one of those things where it's like they assume the customer is completely stupid and with all these opaque labeling laws and things like that, they left the customer to be stupid. So they kind of backed themselves into a corner where now they have to use the government to defend their. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's kind of why like I sort of am cheering him on in this case, just sort of like I was cheering on those grape growers against Copper Cane before. 
because I just like I like when people take a free market approach or not necessarily a free market approach, but try to thumb the government a little bit or try mm-hmm. to try to come together without government help to solve a problem. That's why I really liked what um, King of States Winery was doing with those with the grapes that were rejected by Copper Cane. I also really like what Copper Cane's doing here is they are following the law, so they're avoiding some trouble, but they are also, um, I guess, figuring out a way to tell people where the grapes are from. Perfect. Now, and this is, I mean, this is kind of a cute way to, I guess, to get, you know, quote unquote, cute way to get around the labeling laws. And this is probably going to be decided in Oregon court or federal court because uh, it's it's technically a federal regulation. So it may be a federal issue, but I know that the, I guess the article indicates that the Oregon state is going to also file charges against Copper Cane for this violation because it's too close. Like he's, it, it violates, I guess, the spirit of the law or something like that. So, uh, well, I, think in, I think in Oregon it actually violates Oregon law. Well, I think it does, but it, but accor- yeah. according to the way the article is worded, and or this is what I read out of it, anyways, is copper cane has not violated the law. They are following it exactly right. They don't say it's a Willamette Valley wine. They say the grapes are sourced from Willamette Valley. And the Willameter just happens to be a name that's close to Willamette Valley, and it indicates that that's where the grapes are from. Mm-hmm. But they're not saying Willamette Valley, Day or John or whatever, or AVA Willamette Valley. They're just there. It's just that's just what it is. So this kind of brings up us back to what we were talking about at the beginning, and that is the concept of terroir. So um, again, just to kind of briefly explain terroir again, terroir is a is a is a set of environmental factors and uh, geographical factors that, and and also human factors to some degree that affect a wine. So one of the reasons that like a uh, champagne wine from Champagne is different than a sparkling wine from like Cornwall is because the practice that goes into making a Champagne is different than the practice that goes into making a a, cham- or a sparkling wine in Cornwall. The terroir is also different. So the, the environment is different. So from year to year, it's going to be different. And also the way and the traditions that are surround it and all that sort of stuff are different. So the terroir is kind of all encompassing of of what makes a wine a wine from that area. This doesn't exactly apply to the New World because in the New World we do not have that type of tradition. We actually kind of I think and right, rightfully so sort of thumb our nose at tradition. We do whatever we want to do and make stuff that's better than them. Just like mm-hmm. the Napa and Sonoma uh, cabs were beating the French cabs back in the 70s, and the French were like, what's going on? Um, and that's kind of, I think, the spirit of America. But I also think that in America, we sort of look at Europe a lot of times and for some reason have like, and, and you know, and I do this too, but have like a nostalgia or like a, some sort of reverence for their history. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think history is important to people, and that's one of, like, there was actually a really good talk about this not too long ago by I think Jeff Dice. I'm not I'm not sure who it was by actually, but where they're talking about one of oh no, it was Jeffrey Tucker, where he was talking about the reason he doesn't like using the term libertarian is because it it has a history that only goes back to like the nineteen fifties, whereas if you use the term liberal, then you can pull from people further back, Manger and Mises and all these people further back, and mm-hmm. you have like a strong lineage going all the way back. 
So I understand like why people want to have a history, but we just don't do wine the same way as the Europeans do wine. It's not necessarily better or worse. It's just not the same. But it seems like what they want to do with the the terroir regulations now is try to do it like a European style where we don't have that several hundred year old culture of making wine in Oregon. We have like a 50 or 60 year culture of making wine in Oregon, which may have really great practices, but they're not like they certainly don't need protection from the government. So yeah, and I think like I think what they're what they're doing is they're opening themselves up for suit by the French and the Italians where their terroir and the AVA kind of those equivalents in Europe are the name of the wine, like mm-hmm. champagne. That's mm-hmm. not a like this. That's not a wine grape. That's a combination, that's a blend, that's a specific thing in France. Right. And I think that like or you know, like a burgundy. It's like you're opening yourself up for these problems with the Europeans if you suddenly start trying to enforce this like like terroir thing. Yeah, and 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 it's interesting because there has been several suits by the French against California winemakers for champagne because mm-hmm. there's a lot of California winemakers who label their wines champagne. And the French say yours is not champagne. It's sparkling wine in the champagne style from California. And that's what the, and the Californians who make it are go, well, that's what we're saying. And they're like, no, you're labeling it champagne and it's not champagne. So – they are opening themselves up because the I believe the argument up until this point has been when a French person brings a suit or whatever against somebody in California is the American government who is basically the in-between for this just goes like, yeah, we don't do it that way and mm-hmm. and then dismisses the case. But if if now all these wine growers want to start implementing these very stringent rules, then you are inviting people to start going like, well, you have very similar rules. Why are you not enforcing them? Yeah, my question is like, so this is the – the classic problem, you know, out east faces and out east, well, west faces based on out east in the middle of the country. It's where, like, rule by dictate from some other place. And, like, distant, you know, like California's EPA, you know, their own environmental protection acts that are, you know, destroying the free market for the rest of the country because California is such a big market. So here's a California company that's like, you know, F you, Oregon. And, like, I wonder, like, if we spoke to... Virginia grower or something like that that had if they would even care yeah you know is, is this something that's even on their minds or are they more like no 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 we just want to lower like the interstate tariffs basically and these you know interstate interstate shipping rules right to make it easier for our wines to get out and other wines to get in because more you know are they that free market where they're like you know yeah it's going to stink if California is cheaper suddenly because taxes are down but that means more wine right just variety out there. That's a kind of an interesting, like, I, you know, we've talked about doing this, like talking to like wine producers and things like that, trying to figure out, you know, how much of this is on their radar. Is Oregon kind of possibly setting up a bunch of other wine growers to be like, you know, you're insane. And like, are you going to see people pile on like, to try to defend the Copper King against this problem where they're like, yeah, we're not even, like, this isn't even a problem in our area. Don't do this. Right. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure because I don't know. I, I guess I'm not versed enough in the wine world to know like what the I guess what the feeling is in the atmosphere of, of wine growers, but like where the, what's that? Where the feuds are? Yeah, exactly. Where, where the feuds are, where all that sort of stuff is. But also, like, just I mean, to I guess be fair, like my my in, immediate instinct on anything like this is it's a really bad idea to get the government involved. Oh, that's that's not instinct. That's truth. Yeah. Well, it is. Yeah, truth. But 
to be fair to the article, because I don't want to uh, mischaracterize the author, uh, they did give some compelling arguments for defending terroir, or, or, or what I thought was were compelling arguments. Well, that's the thing is like you know, like I'm like I don't believe in copyright, mm. and I kind of don't believe in trademark, but I can like trademark is one of those things that I feel like closest to in a libertarian sense for like defending of a, an idea. Yeah, like I drew Mickey Mouse, and like this is my trademark logo. Right putting on other products that are that don't represent my quality so like i get that kind of like that thing but that's where i think like a free market perspective would be you know you and me who go in and go okay you know jacob grew this wine or grew these groups in the well Willamette valley he took ambient air yeast from the Willamette valley and in this you know pure environment brewed the you know brewed but you know tried to yeah. make the wine and like how close is it to the terroir like you know you have a certification the basin Jacob Terroir Society say that this is truly Willamette Valley wine, whereas like you know Copper King is not because right. they're just groups there. Well, and I think that that I think that. yeah, and I think that that's kind of I had this very similar thought while I was reading this article, I, and they didn't really mention mention the Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association, but there's already an association established. They could uh-huh. they could easily just come up with a seal, and the seal just says Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association certified. And they just put that sticker on all of the certified wine grapes. And if somebody else puts – or wine – wines. And if anybody else puts that sticker on their wine that says Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association certified or whatever, then they would say, no, you're perpetrating fraud. And they would have a – they would have a case of – against them. Um, exactly. And I think that would be a better approach than going, please, government, please protect us from – copper cane or whatever. But let me go ahead and go over like the the couple of reasons that they listed for why it's a good idea. And I think these arguments would apply perfectly to why you should have a wine growers association certification system instead of a government AVA system. Yeah. And so the uh so here's the arguments as they say uh Tourois includes ambient yeast and the ambient yeast in Napa is not the same as the ambient yeast in Oregon or in Willamette Valley, Rogue Valley, Umqua Valley, any of those types of places. Um, another reason is winemaking practices from region to region differ slightly, and the differences in the uh, procedures that you use to make wine change the t- outcome of the wine. So you may have a Pinot Noir made in California and a Pinot Noir made in Oregon, and even though the process is almost identical, there's that slight difference that does change the outcome. And mm-hmm. And, you know, sommeliers say that they can taste the difference. At this point in my wine tasting career, I don't know that I can taste the difference. I do know that Oregon Pinot Noirs are very good. But I've also had some unbelievable Pinot Noirs from South Africa. And so what the difference is, I couldn't really say. I just know that they're very, they're both very good. They are very different, though, too. So well, it's, like, it's like to throw it back to Pinot. Like, that was a completely different cab. Oh, yeah, yeah. Than anything else we've had in it. Well, that's, I'm actually saving a cab for when you and I get together here in Texas because I think this is, this is a $30 bottle of cab that is very close, I think, to Pina. Not as, not quite as good, but very close, very smooth, very like even taste. Uh, I had the bottle with Nate. So when the Nate episode comes out, um, which probably by the time this comes out, the Nate episode will be out. Uh, we try that one and it's, it's very good. Uh, it's not as good as the peanut. The peanut, like, really, when you pay a hundred bucks for a bottle of wine, you expect a hundred dollar worth of taste. And I really think we gotten on that one. Mm-hmm. This one, it was such a good deal because it came in the Wall Street Journal wines that for, but it's also it's a, it's it's normally a thirty dollar bottle of wine. 
a really excellent $30 bottle of wine. Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, back to the terroir. Um, so, uh-huh. the, so the winemaking practices, those make a difference. Um, the weather affects the way that the wine is aged in the barrel itself. So um, one of the things that happens when wine is put into a barrel, and I think you know this, Mason, is that the heating of the wine and the cooling of the wine, it causes a process that is called breathing. Uh-huh. And that's how it goes into the oak and comes out of the oak. And so when you're making an oak-aged wine, depending on how the temperature cycles throughout the year, will result in a different flavor of the wine. The climate in the Willamette Valley and the climate in Napa Valley are different, and so the aging process will affect the the wine's overall flavor. And actually, the, the, the microclimate in Sonoma versus Napa, which are right next door to each other, is different. And, yeah. and it does affect the flavor. Mm-hmm. So that's that. And then, um, the, I guess the final thought is that the land does, is not the only thing. It, it, the, the land and the environment that you're in doesn't only shape the grapes. It also shapes the growers and the winemakers. And so for the people to be in the region where the grapes are grown, they believe that that shapes their attitude and their feeling toward the grapes and that that makes the wine different because it's them putting a part of themselves into it. Yeah, so like to me, so I'm going to, so real quick, yeah, uh, I could get the article to load. Uh, the author's author's name is Mitch Frank. Mm. So thanks Mitch for the interesting write up. Um, what I would like to point out is, so you're from California, from Virginia to Texas. Mm-hmm. You learn to drive in Virginia. Mm-hmm. However, the rules for driving are slightly different in Virginia than they are in Texas. That's but true, yeah. You don't, you don't really necessarily have to reprove that you know how to drive to be licensed in Texas. So where I'm going with that is, you know, like you and I, you know, say, forget our jobs or, you know, win the lottery, and we move to the Willamette Valley. And being internet entrepreneurs, we source the cheapest winemaking equipment with the highest quality online. So we don't go to the Willamette Wine Growers Association. We don't do any of that. So this is one of those things that, like, they're trying to make the terroir more than it is. If you grew wine in Georgia and were growing it on your family's farm and you were talking to your neighbor whose family's been growing wine there for, you know, a thousand years and you've been growing it for there a thousand years, yes. You guys talk technique. We don't know that, like, one Willamette Valley wine grower does it the same way as the other. So, like, this terroir argument, like, a big portion of that is, like, oh, they're, you know, so like because they're, you know, kind of the area. It's like, well, no, it's not like it's, they sure are um, champagne where, like, it's legally required that they act a certain way. They're putting an emphasis on a practice that may not be there. Yeah. Well, and that, and that may be true. I, the way that I read this and I, and I, and you're reading it a little bit differently than I can, but now that you're saying it, I'm like, oh, that kind of makes sense. Maybe that's what they meant. What I thought they meant was, you know how I love Camp Burton? So there's this camp that I go to in Washington for the listeners, and it's my favorite place on the planet. Uh-huh. And when I'm there, I feel so much different than when I'm in you know, Texas, for example, which I like Texas as well, but I feel different in at Burton and on the Puget Sound and in that area. So I think what, how I read this was that it's the people's connection to the place that makes the wine different, not necessarily them talking to their neighbors and stuff. But now that you kind of point that out, now I think, oh, maybe that's what they mean is that it's that they are part of a community and that the community is people talking to yourself. I, I read it more as like 
when they wake up in the morning and they see the sunshine on the on the valley floor or whatever, that has some sort of special like special mystical effect. Yeah, see, but like I think it's probably an implication of both. But like that's the thing is you're putting it, you you haven't inspected every winery. You don't know that they're all using the same French oak. Mix oh, sure, yeah. Or the there's you don't know these things. Yeah. Well, and why well, what I do know is that there is at least one. Bordeaux ra- born and raised winemaker in Willamette Valley and so he's not from there and I don't I don't know what he's doing but his technique I'm sure is more of the Bordeaux style yeah and like Oregon in California they have like these wineries have people come in from Europe and South Africa and Australia yeah. where you know other where they're trying to get into these other wine groups that they may not always have experience on mm-hmm. to show them things to teach them things to almost guest series like you know it's like when two breweries come you know contribute to brewing a beer mm-hmm. it's like to like this guy's coming in and for five years he's going to work with us and change our techniques like this the it's different when you're talking like i think the appellation makes more sense or the viticulture area that yeah. makes more sense. like okay in this geographical region we've gone and done scientific studies the soil before modification is this the water source is this the water source isn't contaminated by the poop factory you know, right. that's 40 miles up the road like that's not part of this viticulture area there's a one after that that's you know poop wine series but like that that's the thing is like, <laughs> this this argument it to me it's such a it, it's like um you know to throw it to the kind of the current climate of like sexual harassment claims well, at the time, I didn't feel harassed, but now I do, so I was. Right. Okay, you can feel that, but legally you're not. Like, that's, like, you can't just be like, well, now I feel we're this area, and we're, we're special, and we're a group, and we need to protect it. Yeah. Like, yeah, but four years ago, you didn't give a crap. Right, and and this is kind of was the summary that I gave at the end of, of, my, of my summary of the article, was that it seems more like these rules are protectionism, like regional protectionism, that these groups can lobby the... Department of Taxation, and uh, why is people buzzing me while well, I'm trying to make a show here? Okay. Uh, they're they're trying to basically. So you've got these little groups of people who are complaining to the federal government, and the federal government comes in and makes a big stink of it. And I really think that they're just inviting trouble. They're 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 inviting the government into their bed, and they're not going to like the regulations that are then later on imposed on them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a great way to conclude the article because I think we both agree that. Where, whether whether the terroir is real or not real, or the viticulture area should be respected or not respected, there are free market solutions, and getting the government involved in it is not a good idea at all. Correct. All right. Uh, let's do plugs real quick. So yeah. mid mid show plugs. Um, oh yeah. And I actually, I, I want I want to plug our our good buddies first at the mm-hmm. friend at the Friends Against Government because they listen to our show and that makes me happy. And, uh, and also they're just, they're fun people to interact with online. Um, but, uh, there's also another show that I've been listening to that I really like. And I think I, I think I mentioned it to you. Um, where is it? Hold on. I got, here it is. It's called, it's the show's called, uh, the culinary libertarian. Mm-hmm. He's got like 20 episodes, I think out right now. And they're, I think you and I, and this guy are part of like a new cultural movement of libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of this like you and I, I think a lot more than he does actually. And I have, I've only listened to three of his episodes. We talk a lot about politics, but 
especially since we've kind of gotten to our stride on the show, uh, it's a lot more about politics as it relates to wine and wine regulation and, and that sort of thing. Um, well, that's, that's your just nature of, re- nature of you and your research. That's true. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'm very interested in it. And like, since I've started getting into wine, like it, it's super interesting and there's a lot going on there. And I don't know that any libertarians are writing about it or talking about it. There, there really needs, I think, to be a libertarian point of view on a lot of the stuff that's going on in the wine world. And uh-huh. so I, I feel like we're starting to like build our ways toward that. Um, uh-huh. this guy's focus on the culinary libertarian is cooking, specifically baking. Ooh. He has got one of the best communication styles I think I've heard in a long time. He's he, and I think it might be because he used to be a teacher. He is uh-huh. such a thorough communicator, oh, wow. and he explains like he has this one episode on how to make biscuits, uh-huh. and like the way he explains making a biscuit, a it paints this delicious picture of biscuits in my mind, and b. The way he explains it makes total sense as he's just going through step by step because he's not giving you a recipe. He's saying, go to my blog, you can get the recipe. But I'm going to tell you how it is that good bakers make good biscuits. Like what's the difference between the biscuits that you make and the biscuits that a really good baker makes? And and he goes through those steps. So the Culinary Libertarian, check check him out. He's got a really great show, especially if you're interested in baking. Uh, I'm going to reach okay. out to him because I'd love to have him on our show at some point because he's a cool guy. And, I, and since he's worked in restaurants and bakeries and things like that, I bet you he's got a good insight on wine pairing, which is something that I don't know a lot about. And I've just started like discovering like the mm-hmm. the wine pairing and how it does actually really it really affects this really great like combination of flavors that is is super interesting. Um, but back to our like our friends against government, I think that that's a really great show. It's very entertaining. It's very different than our show, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. And, and my favorite is when they talk about cryptids because, <laughs> because I love cryptids and I love conspiracy theories. And these guys do a really good job covering that. Um, and if you can't find them. Online, you can always go to Twitter and at Tasting Anarchy. You can follow me, and I interact with both Bird Arcus and Car Campit and the Friends Against Government podcast Twitter feed. Um, so you'll be able to find them there. Uh, you can also, if you guys have a comment or want to talk about something that we talked about on the show, you can always email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And you can also go check out our wine reviews, which are sort of sparse, or our book reviews, which are also a little bit sparse. <laughs> on uh, the tastinganarchy.com website. I've got a, a good uh, a good new book review in the works on uh, a book called The Beautiful Tree, which was also featured on an episode of Tom Woods several years ago, and I finally got around to it. Um, it's a really, really interesting book. It's about how education is provided in the third world privately despite public schools existing and that the poor – much better education and that even poor people who have almost no money choose to send their kids to these private educators rather than sending them to the public schools because the public schools abuse them or rape them or don't teach them or various other things that go on there. So, uh, look forward to that and any, Oh, uh, we're on Instagram now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Tasting anarchy on Instagram. I think I've got three pictures up, but we'll have more to come. So am I forgetting Uh, anything, Mason? Uh, so, uh, the Instagram will have, uh, Foxy showing off some fantastic wines. Maybe Henry, if he, uh, will participate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was our, our dogs. <laughs> they are the, uh, the doggy wine and winepreneurs. Uh, right. So I've suddenly made them entrepreneurs in wine. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, 
I don't think we're missing anything there. Um, you know, um, you know, this is a mid-show plug, so this is kind of a end-show plug that we don't always bring up that we should bring up more, but we try to. Ross Ulbrich is still in jail for things that aren't crimes. Right. Um, and the people who put him in jail, some of them are in jail for their actions while putting him in jail. And supposedly he has no more um, appeals, which is insanity. Yeah. Uh, he does, his yeah. his only hope at this point, I believe, is a presidential pardon, and so I think, if, I think there are more hopes, okay, but not realistic. Okay. Like they could retroactively change the laws that he was sentenced under, mm, okay. and they could free him. They could um, change the U.S. Like so, in you know, like in Denmark, and a lot of them, not Denmark, but a lot of the Scandinavian countries, there's a maximum jail sentence for any crimes. Okay, and it's like years so they could change the the laws could change to that um i think if gross incompetence was found like by somebody who hasn't already had gross incompetence charges brought against them say like it was found out the um, judge took bribes which it looks like she kind of did right um, well and also the the officers that were investigating him are i would say that's gross incompetence yeah but they've already tried those oh, okay so like if they get proved that like you know she she got some sort of position or retired so she did something happen where like she is no longer a judge anymore um but if they could prove that like she was directed to rule in a certain way in the case he could get a new trial you know those sort of things right and I, I think there might be some other technicalities, but, you know, the the realistic thing is um, a presidential pardon or just a collapse of the federal government. And right. Then basically, you know, people liberating people like Lars from prison. Yeah. Um, basically saying, yeah, you guys don't deserve to be in jail and there's no government anymore, so we're letting you out. Right. Well, and I... And I, and I would really hope, like, Trump is, seems to be the kind of erratic enough character that something like this could catch his attention and he may actually issue a pardon, but you know. I, I think he's too law and order for that. I, I think what, I think what we're going to look at is um, whoever's after Trump, because if Trump wins 2020, they're going to be sick of Republicans after that. Right. But I don't think the Dems will be strong enough. So there could be, you know, let's say, let's say Larry Sharp does a good showing in New York, like second. Yeah. He doesn't, I mean, if he becomes the governor of New York, all bets are off. Right. Because I think because I think people who were involved in the case were in New York. Um, so he could try to pursue, like, if it's true that they were in New York, he could try to pursue charges against them. You know, there's things that he could do. Um, but, like, if Sharp wins the governorship, he's running for president on a high level. Right. And, he, you know, like, I, I think it would take about 10 minutes for him to just be like, yeah, he's, he's not in jail anymore. Yeah. Like, I'm, like, walking down there tomorrow and opening his cell myself and taking him out. He's free. You know, that, that sort of thing. That's the yeah. type of thing Larry Trump would do. Um, at least in my, my opinion of feelings for Larry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if, uh, if, if, you know, Larry comes in anything other than first, sorry for the loss, Larry. Um, you know, next time he'll do even better. Uh, if Larry do somehow win New York, congratulations, because this will come out after the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's true. I guess it's Tuesday. So, yeah, ho- hopefully yeah. <laughs> a good show, a good showing for him. There's very few candidates that I approve of, and but I do like Larry Sharp. So there's, there's really no candidates I approve of. And Larry, Larry is kind of my Ron Paul. 
Like, yeah. It's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm willing to give this a try. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Well, I think that's a good, a good place to end that segment. Do you want to go over these last two articles or you want to yeah. end, end the show on time? Well, let's go over, uh, the decanter one. Okay. And we'll save the, the other one for, we'll see, we'll, we'll see how more, how it plays out. Okay. All right. Um, we'll talk about that in a mini episode or if I can pull it off, I, I'm going to try to do a mini episode. Okay. Maybe I'll talk about that one. We'll, okay. we'll talk about it off. All right. Well, the decanter one is pretty interesting. So this is out of decanter magazine and, um, it's by, uh, Chris Mercer. It's a pretty recent article. It came out October 30th. So by the time you guys hear this, it's, it'll be slightly older, but, um, it has to do with the UK wine duties. Now there is since 2010, there's actually been a pretty high duty on, uh, wine in the UK. It's actually 28% in 2010, but they've been no, increased by 28%. Well, it was an increase. Yeah. Increased by 28%. I don't know what, I don't know what the top is, but it, it has, it's set to raise or rise with inflation. So the, I guess the, the guy in charge of it, um, who's the chancellor, um, his last name's Hammond. He has decided that he is going to go ahead with the, um, the scheduled rise in duty on wine, but he is going to forego the rise on cider and beer. So the, the wine and spirit trade association in the UK is very unhappy with the tax increase. Um, the argument that they have, or it's not really an argument, but what they're pointing out is that effectively this is a 7% rise of the price of still wine and a 9% rise on the price of sparkling wine. And that in total, it will cost the industry nearly $90 million or 90 million pounds, which is a little more than $90 million. Uh, I think it's like $120 million or something like that. Um, and that it is, it also is not really a, I'm trying to think of the way that they are trying to spin this, but, and I think they're spinning it correctly, that this is a anti-competitive move, that, uh-huh. that the UK government is imposing some sort of restraint on one type of alcoholic beverage over two other types of alcoholic beverage, and I'm going to spin it this way. It, to me, seems like this is a cultural bias, is that the British, because they do have this sort of like Brexit wave going right now, um, although it's mixed feelings, but it, cause it was a very close referendum, but, uh, they are trying to impose duties on a type of alcoholic beverage that is largely imported versus one that is not largely imported. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it seems like that is, I mean, you, when you think of the Brits, you don't think about wine drinkers, really. You think of beer and cider drinkers. And so they're kind of imposing this tariff on, um, on a beverage that is not culturally as relevant as other beverages. So like we said in 2010, the wine duty was increased to 28%, which was a huge, or by 28%, not to 28%, by 28%. So, which is, but it's a, it's a flat rate. So it, it's the same amount per bottle across all wines. And what this also does is it sort of changes people's buying habits because it because it's a flat rate if you buy a slightly more expensive wine you're actually getting a lot more bang for your buck so if you go and buy like a $3 bottle of wine at Lidl a very large percentage of that is tax so you're really only getting like a dollar wine 
or or maybe a two dollar wine. But if you go <laughs> if you go buy a hundred dollar bottle of wine, you're getting like a ninety five dollar bottle of wine because because uh-huh. it, it's it's a flat rate. So um, and that's kind of what they go into on the wines in the article is that they're is it's basically they're just kind of explaining that this puts like a huge slant on the way on on consumer behavior because as Mises points out in human action humans act and they act based on what they think is in their best interest so you're basically you're encouraging people to buy well it's kind of a catch 22 because you're making wine more expensive so you're encouraging people to conserve money by buying beer or cider but if somebody really wants wine and they're trying to conserve wine or money, they'll try to buy a cheaper wine. But on the other hand, if they buy the cheaper wine, they're not getting as much bang for their buck because they're getting a much cheaper wine when they could be pay- buying a much more expensive wine and getting a higher quality of wine, but still playing the same, paying the same flat rate. So uh-huh. it, it creates this huge distortion in the wine market in the UK that the wine and spirit trade association is very worried about. They don't know what effect this is going to have on people's behavior and wine has been growing in popularity in the UK over the last several years, despite the scheduled uh, increases in the tax. Uh, and I think they've, since 2010, they've frozen it twice. So there's been two years where it didn't raise, but, but every year, I guess, well, over the last eight years, every year it's, it's risen except for twice. So it's risen six times and now it's rising by another seven or 9%, depending on what type of wine it is. So it's, I think it's kind of an interesting article, but it's also gives us an opportunity to sort of point out how the government in a lot of ways, um, distorts consumer behavior and, and creates distortions in the market, which make also capitalists change their, um, their behavior as well. So this, this is one of the things that, that Rothbard and Mises and Hayek and all them pointed out was that when the government does things like this, it causes malinvestment. So mm-hmm. what one thing I could I mean I could just guess one of the things that might happen is that um, I don't know exactly and I tried to see this in the article I don't know how this duty applies uh, to domestic wine and foreign wine so I think it's the same for both domestic and foreign but it might be only on imports and and it wasn't clear to me in the article um, but if it let's say that it only applies to foreign wines um, what if this people see an opportunity to clear twenty eight percent or well, twenty eight percent plus whatever it's gone up by, and say that, and say, okay, what we need to do is we need to tear out all of the this you know wheat growing land and put in wine so that we can produce cheap wine so that people can buy it from us at a discount price, mm-hmm. and we'll clear that twenty eight percent or whatever it is, and that. But then in the future, this tax goes away, and this is a, is a subpar wine that's an inferior product. That wine. That the wine that they're that they've invested in domestically was a malinvestment. They shouldn't have been growing it there because it's not optimal growing conditions. And but the only reason they were is they saw an opportunity in the market that was caused by a distortion the government was making, and so they weren't able to accurately read market signals. And this caused a diversion of resources out of a sector that probably needed it into a sector that only needed it because the imports were not uh, optimally priced or priced uh, accurately. And so, and then this causes further ripples. So what are the things that go into needing to make a winery? So you need, you know, you need tractors, the capital equipment, which raises the price of capital equipment in other areas. You need, you know, timber to make the, the buildings. You need steel to make the buildings. You need all these various things. And when now there's a demand in the winemaking industry for these products domestically, as opposed to somewhere else, you know, in, in a different sector, 
it creates a bidding war and bids up the prices. And so mm-hmm. this, we, although this tax seems very innocuous in, in a lot of ways to, you know, your run of the mill statist, it's not innocuous. It creates massive ripple effects in the economy that will, that will cause a lot of malinvestment. And this also, if it'll affect the decisions of, you know, Lidl and Aldi and various grocery chains on what they're going to buy, what they're going to market. Uh, this may even cause people to start watering their wine down or something like that. You know, there, I mean, there's other regulations that could, you know, affect that, but this, it, it's going to make people have to change a lot of their practices. It's going to have to make consumers change their buying habits and it's going to have to, and it's going to make producers affect their production habits. And I think that's one thing that I really try to like make clear to people when I talk to them and not in like an arrogant way, but when you're asking for the government to impose these large taxes or not even a large tax, if even a small tax can have a huge distortion, you are causing people to change their decisions, which makes the signals in the market inaccurate. And this is what contributes to boom bust cycles. This is exactly what does. So a couple of things I want to point out. Um, so it's a duty. Okay. Um, so it's on all wine. Okay. I wasn't sure. Um, I wasn't sure if a duty was imports or if it was on all wine. Yeah. This is the kind of the crazy thing about, you know, especially Britain. Yeah. They have both. Okay. They have the VAT, which is sales tax, and they also have duties. Okay. Um, so basically, so to kind of take it back, it's a 3.1% app, you know, averaged increase in the price of, uh, that effectively meant a 3.1% rise in the wine duty. So there's that. To a still bottle of wine, it's about nine pence or seven pence, excuse me. And a sparkling, it's about nine pence. Oh, I read this at that. I just reread that, and I read that as percent. I forgot that yeah. their I forgot their money. It was called pence. Yeah. No, this is <laughs> read on wine between five point five percent and fifteen percent. Okay, that so, I, that actually puts it a lot like you know the much narrower perspective because I was going like, how on earth are they going to stand a seven percent increase in price? <laughs> Yeah, so it's about a 3% duty. Increase. Okay, okay. Well, it's still, 3% is quite a bit. Well, I mean, statistically, we know that, like, it won't necessarily be completely borne by the consumer, but yeah, yeah. it's pretty significant. Um, but that's the thing is, like, it's, so this is one of those things where it's not a VAT, which is based on the price. So, you know, like, a Buffet Rothschild's 2016 or sub-$20 wine from Lidl, it doesn't matter. So what you were saying, so the... 28% increase is equal to about a 48 pence change in the price. So a three, bottle, three pound bottle of wine, I mean, that's about a, a sixth of the price yeah. intact. So, you know, and then so alcohol duties were expected to deliver $11.6 billion to the UK Treasury for 2018-2019. Um, so that would be 0.5% of the projected national income. So like one of the things that, you know, there, there's a couple of ways to look at taxes. So, you know, we think taxation is slavery. Well, I think it is in that, yeah. in that stuff. But you can also look at taxation as kind of like the, um, I think the Chicago school kind of does, as like a nudge where you're trying to nudge somebody to decrease an activity you don't like or you think is bad for them. So... Yeah, I think I think that might. I don't know if that's Chicago. I think the supply siders talk about that, but I, I don't remember who it well, is. Chicago is the supply side. Oh, school. they are okay. Well, that's the thing. They, the Chicago school may not specifically because there's. I think there are other supply siders. Okay. Um, 
you know, so it's like a nudge. So like you can think about it from the standpoint of, you know, the British, like what's kind of the famous thing about the British is they drink too much. Yeah. Um, you know, like, which is funny because like Americans are like supposed to be super drinkers and you look at like the Australian and British reputation and it's like super drinkers. Yeah. <laughs> but the different culture there. Yeah. Um, yeah. They've got, you know, pub culture. Like it's not yeah. like when Americans think of bars, they think of like a sports bar, which you go to when there's games and stuff like that or a dive. But when like, mm-hmm. when a British person thinks of a pub, it's just where you go hang out and it's pretty yeah. common. And it closes at midnight. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've always thought that, like, growing up, and granted, I grew up in a, you know, puritanical, I wouldn't say puritanical, but, like, more a much more conservative household. And so, like, I was very nervous to be anywhere near bars because I thought they were dangerous and had people of ill repute in them, and it was not a... <laughs> just not a good place to be mm-hmm. but in britain it's just part you know and i and i also i know there's tons of people who had that same opinion of bars as i did but in britain that's just it's just where you go it's just like it's just part of your life it's down the corner yeah but yeah that, that's a, it's just interesting and then so the third way you can look at taxes is a revenue source for the government you're not trying to stop the activity you're just saying hey they're going to do the activity no matter what we're going to profit from it and, yeah you know we're going to top and it happens to reduce the activity we don't care and so that's kind of the like there's no and like oh then we can fund doing these things and we'll build better roads or something you know and that's the thing that always kind of you know when we were going to the libertarian meetings about 10 years ago we kind of talked about taxes it was like each tax was elected with like a specific reason it was to be done like to fund this to do that and then like look what they do with it like they don't right. do that at all yeah they come up with even for having a new tax so but yeah, this is this is what's always so interesting about reading. Like, hey, you kind of have the like, and this is a like, there's a there's an episode of uh, the Lou Rockwell show where he's talking to this Alabama judge about World War One, and in the book he's talking about kind of the like the Anglo, um, specifically British machinations to kind of redirect the world and continue the empire and stuff like that. And like bringing the American cousin in, you know, kind of like right. America. That's kind of the interesting thing is like, we have this relationship with the British where it's like, oh yeah, they're our cousins. Like, you know, they're just across the pond, but like, we don't think about like that necessarily with the Australians or the New Zealanders or the South Africans, where like they also speak English predominantly. It's mainly like the UK. It's the British, not necessarily the Irish or the Scottish, you know, people mm-hmm. will kind of lean whichever way there, but it's like you have this special relationship with England. And then, you know, decanter.com, like as you said, is mainly a British website. Like, oh, the duty and the that. And, you know, you and I are kind of like steeped in British culture and kind of know what those things mean. But even then, we're like, what the, what the heck does this duty mean? Is it like against everybody, just these one people? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, because that's, you know, how like when you, uh, you know, like when you're at the airport, you can go to the duty free shop. Mm-hmm. Like I always think of that, like Kramer song when, like when they're like, "Hey Kramer, do you want to go to the airport?" And he's like, "I like to shop at the duty free shop, or I like to stop at the duty free shop." Mm-hmm. And like he's and he just sings that little tune or whatever. And I thought a duty was just like import taxes, and mm-hmm. then, but I guess like I shouldn't get my tax education from Seinfeld. <laughs> but, well, uh, like I, I, I thought the same thing. Okay. And, that's a an interesting like kind of thing. I'm trying to um, try to look it up real quick to see if I can find a quick definition. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, I, it is interesting, but it, I, even so, like my point, I think still stands is that this is causing a distortion in the market, particularly when you're not rising it. And, and even if it wasn't just a cross on alcoholic beverages as a category, when like you know you get to a, like I like uh, kefir a lot. So if like wine got to a point where it was so expensive that we couldn't really like logically afford it or realistically afford it, we would just change this 
show to like the kefir hour or something like that. <laughs> and I would review different kefirs because I think it's, I think that's very good beverage as well, but yeah. I, I don't know if you do or not, but <laughs> regardless, I've, I've only had it once and I didn't particularly care for it. Okay. Well, it, it, I, I guess it's sort of in the same vein as cheese. So I could see you not liking it, but well, um, I, think, I think it's one of those things where like, I have appreciation for Russian things having had Russian friends. You have an appreciation for Russian food having a Ukrainian wife. Right. It, it also fits your favorite flavor flavor. It does. More than it does mine. And that's the thing that always kind of like frustrates me when I look at like, you know, I, I have a deep like longing for Georgia. Like yeah. Country, and I don't, I can't explain it. <laughs> I don't understand it. Um, I think it actually goes back to George Bush Jr. Like, in his love of Georgia back when the crazy guy who became like the mayor, like in Ukraine and like went on the lamb again. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> like, you know, he seemed like back in the day, like a good guy. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that says, Oh, he's a kind of crazy guy. Right. And uh, I'm like, I think I have this, you know, love of the Ukraine or Georgia, you know, from then. But like every time I look at Georgian, you know, culinary traditions, it's like cilantro and cheese. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of cilantro and dill. Dill is super popular in Ukraine. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like dill a lot, but I, I do actually, I do have a, I have the kind of, I guess, Eastern European palate. And I think I got it from my grandpa because mm. he would always, you know, he's a Jew from Czechoslovakia, but he was, his family was actually from Ukraine. We discovered, um, mm-hmm. I think he was actually born in Hungary, but his family was from Ukraine and they came to Hungary and then went to Czech Republic and then the Nazis. So then they came to America. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I do, I do have kind of a palette for it. Like I, I do like it a lot. We had like Victoria got, uh, well, we went to the Russian store this weekend and she, there's this thing called Blinchki. And it's one of my favorite things that we get. And this new Russian store that we've been going to has a bakery attached to it. Mm-hmm. Or it's not attached to it. They just make baked goods and they have them there. And he had cooling on the counter a whole bunch of different types of Russian baked goods or Eastern European baked goods. And they had fresh blinchki. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And I said, is this farmer's cheese blinchki? And he was like, yes, it's farmer's cheese blinchki. And I was like, I'll take some of those, and I'll take some of those, and I'll take some of those. <laughs> and I, he had all sorts of good stuff. And, like, they, you can stuff them with all sorts of things. Like Victoria's mom uh, makes one that's stuffed with mushrooms that I think is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that you can get them stuffed with beef, which the he had, we got a couple of blinchki with beef. And then we got two blinchki with the farmer's cheese, which is super, super good. But it's like basically like a, like a stuffed crepe kind of. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how else to describe it, but it's, it's like a it's like a crepe, but it's a little different than the French crepe. Um, yeah, it's very good. Pastry. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's a stuffed pastry. It's it, they're super good, and the savory ones are also awesome. Then you just slather them in, in sour cream, or if you're out of sour cream, you just put some kefir on top of them, and it's super good. <laughs> but a combination of like things I don't care for. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, oh man, I, I, I loved it. I was super happy this, this weekend cause we had a bunch of that hanging out. Um, yeah, you know, we, we, we did go through that article pretty quickly. We probably have enough time to go through this last one if you want, cause it's not a very long one. I, I have a lot that I want to talk about on it. Okay. And I think that's going to drag out the episode. Okay. Than, than I want to go for. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Uh, well, then we'll go ahead and and wrap it up there. Do you have any final thoughts on the duty in Britain? No. Um, 
Uh, so I looked it up, and like duty can just basically mean a tax across the board, you know, sales, manufactured good, it doesn't matter. So okay, so I wonder, I wonder uh, why they, I wonder why they, they differentiate duty and VAT. I guess because the VAT is is based off a percentage of the sales, and, mm-hmm. and the well, duty is flat for value added tax. Right. Okay. But yeah, I looked it up. Um, I, at one point, I read an article because I was trying to figure out what that meant. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you, this was probably around the time we met. Right. So, and I somebody kind of trying to explain the difference in the article. And, you know, I know I could never find it, but it was really confusing at the time because it was like, why don't they call it sales tax? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, uh, down with taxes. Yep. And that was back back when you were reading about that. That's back when I was really into the fair tax. Yeah. And I and I had like written and done a bunch of debates and stuff like that at school about how the fair tax was so great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how well, how we've changed in the last 10 years. To be to be fair, that's not a bad argument. Like so this is the kind of the you know, last thing we'll be on and you know we'll both make this very quick. Okay. Kind of the if you're gonna have the conversation with the person, do you just cover your ears and shout saying no 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 or do you propose something better in the meantime? Right. And you know, uh, we'll leave it to the you know, here's here's what I'll say. If you're listening to this, doesn't matter when, but Tasting Anarchy is still active on Twitter. Reference this episode and let us know what you think. Should you take the ultimate position and cede no ground, or should you at least have the conversation about what would be better in the meantime? Right. Well, you know, and I do actually have a, uh, I have a different tactic than a lot of. I think a lot of people who kind of come into libertarianism and, and anarchy and that sort of stuff, they get very. Uh, trying to think of like a nice way to say it but and i do this occasionally too where it's it's very i guess hard-headed is the best way to describe it very um no uh they won't cede any ground and and i don't expect them to cede any ground what i do expect from all individuals regardless of your political affiliation is that you will enter a conversation in best faith and try to maintain the conversation in best faith as long as possible and rather than allowing the conversation to get to the point where uh you're going to start saying bad things or mean things against somebody is disengaged from the conversation so one of one of my friends don't burn the bridge. Yeah, exactly. So one of one of the my favorite stories that Walter Block, our one of our favorite superior grapes, um, says is that when he was a young socialist in in Brooklyn, he went to a meeting of some great libertarian thinkers or I guess Ayn Rand's not technically a libertarian, but like those types of thinkers. So Ayn Rand was there, Murray Rothbard was there, various other people were there. And I don't recall who this was that engaged with him, but uh, I'm going to summarize a story by he, he said, there's a socialist who wants to de- debate a libertarian on economics, and somebody pointed him to the other end of the table where Ayn Rand and Rothbard and various others were, and Ayn Rand and Rothbard were busy talking to each other, and so he met with another guy, and the guy said, look, I'm perfectly willing to debate economics with you, but I need, I need uh, two promises from you. One is that you'll read this book that I give you from – and not – uh, and not, you know, skip it or whatever. You got to read it from front to back and that we won't stop talking until one of us is convinced the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the best approach to talking to other people is you can usually assess if somebody's a reasonable person. If they're unreasonable, it's not worth your time arguing with them at all. If they are a reasonable person, then this is a potential friendship you have, even if you'll never agree on, on things. And there will be a point like, we're not at that point. We're nowhere near this point. And I, and I know a lot of anarchists will get this way is they'll be like, well, he advocates for the government and therefore he wants to hurt me. That's true. 
to some degree. But the fact of the matter is we live in a government system, in a status system, and we are all oppressed equally, and some people don't see it. And the only way you're going to convince somebody is by being cordial and uh, fomenting, I guess, a conversation and uh-huh. and continuing that conversation. And even if you don't convince them to be anarchists, you can at least plant the seeds that you do not uh, – you do not accept it. So when they, when they are, when they are advocating for the, you know, the stormtroopers to come in and get people, they have to remember that one of their friends, the person that has been kind to them and has had very long conversations with them and has acted in good faith that they're ordering those stormtroopers to kill somebody that they have a relationship with. And that does affect most people. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I think people should keep in mind is, you know, don't burn your bridges, try to keep a conversation going and don't let it get too, uh, don't ever say anything that you can't take back, I guess. <laughs> so I'll leave it there. Yeah, so for um, uh, tasting energy to all of you, have a good one. All right, stay free. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, 40 to drink wine. Wine, 40 to drink wine. Wine, 40 to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine. Wine for the other day, wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day, wine.